Today we're going to look at the conditions of the flames blazing forth and cooling down as this occurs in our everyday ordinary lives and we'll do so according to natural principles. These conditions of the arising and the cooling down of of these things are something that you have been studying under the name of dependent origination or Paticca Samuppada. However, today I'll speak of it specifically as the the flames blazing forth or catching fire and then the cooling down, the quenching of those flames. Now the importance of dependent origination is that it is the heart of Buddhism. This is a principle found only in Buddhism. Although other religious teachings may have some correspondence or similarities to the principle of dependent origination, there is the full explanation of it can only be found in Buddhism. None of the ancient or more recent religions, creeds, and ideologies of Asia, as well as the West, speak of dependent origination in its fullness. And it's because of this teaching of dependent origination that Buddhism is considered to be the one scientific religion, the one religion which is able to face and cooperate with the scientific needs and aims of the modern world. This is what Einstein meant when he said that if there is any religion which can go along with or fit with modern scientific needs, that religion is Buddhism. He was able to say this because Buddhism has the principle of dependent origination. If we describe it in its general outline, we call it the Four Noble Truths, or the Ariya Satcha. If we speak in detail, it's called Dependent Origination, the Ticca Samuppada, or the Law of Conditionality, the Tapajayata. And further, this matter has the honor of being spoken of by the Buddha as whoever sees 
dependent origination sees the Dhamma, and whoever sees the Dhamma sees me. Therefore, would, would you please be especially interested in, as we speak about this part of Buddhism, and as we go into the religion which can meet the needs of the modern scientific world. When we speak in general about all things, whether animate or inanimate, mental or physical, we use the term itapajayata into as the name of this principle, which means the, the law of conditionality. However, when we speak more specifically of living things which experience pleasure and pain, then we give it the more specific name of Paticca Samupada, dependent origination. Nonetheless, in the Pali texts, in the scriptures, it's often, this principle is often referred to by both names together. If we wish to speak about God, then we must speak about this law of conditionality of dependent origination as being the Buddhist God, although it is an impersonal God. There are Western scholars who say that Buddhism is atheistic, meaning that it has no God. You ought to know, however, that, and, and therefore they say Buddhism is not a religion, assuming that a religion must have a god. You should know, however, that Buddhism is not atheistic, that Buddhism has a god, however, this is an impersonal god. Therefore, Buddhism is worthy of the name religion, in fact, more so than any other religious tradition or teaching. Concerning this word religion, we should understand its meaning correctly. Religion comes from the root lig or leg, the Roman the Latin scholars aren't quite sure. One means to observe in the sense of practice, and the other means to bind. And so we ought to understand the word to religion to mean the system of observances or practices which binds humanity, binds the human being to the highest thing. With this definition of religion, Buddhism fits 
perfectly, 100%. Because Buddhism is the way of practice that ties the human being to the highest thing, namely Nibbana, the total quenching of dukkha. This is a, this principle is a natural one, which means that everyone is able to practice it, regardless of their nationality, sex, or religion. That means you, each of you, is able to apply this principle in order to end suffering or dukkha in your everyday lives. This is possible because dependent origination is a natural principle. This principle is an eternal one, one that can be used and applied by human beings anytime, whether in the present or in the future. Ever since humanity first discovered this principle, and for as long as humanity exists, this principle will be always applicable and available. So it's of eternal significance for human beings. When we speak of the life which is flaming and blazing, we also ought, ought to reflect on the life that is cool, where all the heat and burning has cooled down. And so allow us to consider this coolness in life, the quenching of the heat a little bit in order to guide us on our path. In religions with ordinary kinds of gods, the meaning of coolness is to be united with God. Buddhism, however, does not have that kind of a God. And so we speak of realizing the highest thing, which is Nibbana, or in Sanskrit, Nirvana. The meaning of Nibbana, Nirvana, is coolness, coolness. And so we ought to study what it is to be cool. We should examine the meaning of coolness. A fact which you ought to observe is that the terminology of religion has come after ordinary language. For this reason, religion must borrow the words and terms of ordinary everyday life and then give them a new particularly religious meaning. The word Nibbana, before it was borrowed and put to religious use, had the simple ordinary meaning of 
cool or coolness. It meant when a fire cooled down or when something hot cooled down. For example, when, when hot food, food that was too hot to eat, cooled down enough that it could be eaten. Or when hot metal out of the blast furnace or out of the forge and then was cooled by dousing it with water. These ordinary uses of the word nibbana or coolness were used by ordinary regular people in their daily lives. Later, the materialistic, the material meaning of the word was raised a bit to be applied to mental things. For example, if a lion was captured in the forest and then taken in with people and then trained and tamed until it was like a house cat. For the taming of a wild animal, the word Nibbana was used. Once it became as tame as a house cat, it was said to have been cooled. And so now the meaning has, the word coolness has been given a mental meaning, not just material meaning. Later, human beings were more, became more fully aware of the mind and realized that dukkha, that suffering in the mind was the, the most important thing. And so they searched for coolness, for the quenching of the heat within the mind. At one stage, people thought they found this coolness in sensuality, including in sex, by satisfying sensual desires. They thought they found a coolness, and they called this Nibbana. However, this was a very shaky and confused kind of coolness. And so people looked further. And then some yogis and meditators discovered what are called the jhanas. These are deep states of calm where the mind is exclusively focused on a single object. And in this deep samadhi or collectedness, concentratedness of mind, there is, there's a great peace. And so various levels of this mental calmness or tranquility were then taken to be nibbana, the coolness or quenching of heat. Now these two understandings came, were two different periods. First, the period where sensuality and sex was taken to be the quenching of heat. And then the deep states of concentration were taken to be the quenching or coolness. And then later, the Buddha appeared 
and the Buddha discovered the natural, the principle of nature, and he did so fully. And so he realized that sensuality or states of tranquility were not were not the answer. These were not sufficient. They would not last. These were not the quenching he was he had been looking for. He saw that the 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 truest the perfect complete meaning of coolness is the quenching of the fires of lust the fire of hatred and the fire of delusion when the mind is totally free entirely free of lust hatred and delusion that is the ultimate meaning of coolness and so one finds coolness when the, there's no more potential, no more possibility in the mind of these fires igniting again. They've been quenched absolutely. This is the genuine, true meaning, the absolute meaning of coolness. It's rather funny that even now, 2,600 years later, there are still people who take sensuality, who take sex to be the highest, the best thing. Or they, they cling to the highest positive as their goal in life, as the end of their problems. So we need to, to look very closely to understand that even the highest positive, even the best positive is hot. We need to realize that true coolness is, is beyond even the positive. True quenching is beyond and above both the positive and the negative. Now it's quite difficult for people to understand that even the most exquisite, refined positive is still hot. So we must examine this very carefully if we are to see the, the real coolness, which is beyond positive and negative, which is beyond all dualities, good and evil, and all the other pairs of opposites. The positive is still trapped in duality. When you're reaching after the positive, you're also getting the negative simultaneously. For the mind to be truly cool, it needs to be beyond positive and negative together. In the tantric schools of Hinduism and even in certain groups of Buddhists, sex is 
taken to be Nibbana. At least, or some of them at least, take sex to be a path or a way to Nibbana. This is quite surprising that even now there are people who still cling to this idea instead of looking for the highest and truest meaning of Nibbana. Sensuality and sex is, is hot. This may be hard to see, so we need to examine it carefully. You could say that it's a wet kind of heat. It's a kind of, it's a particular kind of heat which is wet or soaking, soaking wet. So one cannot find and in this there is always a kind of struggle to, to rely upon, to base one's life on sensuality and sex means that one is involved in constant struggle, in all kinds of difficulty regarding these things. It's much easier, much better just to, to leave that alone, to not depend on it in order to find the true coolness, which is when the fires of lust, hatred, and delusion are entirely cooled. Now the coolness which is our, our aim our goal is, has two important qualities. We should understand them. The first quality of this cool, coolness is peacefulness, a cool peacefulness. And the second quality is usefulness. The coolness we're speaking about here is perfectly peaceful, and fully useful. The peacefulness, the cool peace, which is another name for Nibbana, has at least four aspects. There are many different aspects to this, or ways of looking at it, but four basic ones are, the first is calm, or peace, or peacefulness. The second is stability. The second one is a stability, a firmness. The third is freedom or independence. And the fourth is activeness, a readiness. These four, these are four basic aspects of the cool peace, the calmness, stability, freedom, and activeness. Now we, some people like to speak of Nibbana as happiness, 
In doing so, we must be very careful to understand what kind of happiness is meant. Many people, will, when hearing the word happiness, assume it's the ordinary kind of happiness that they've been running around looking for all along. Most people, when they hear that Nibbana is the highest happiness, think that it's just another kind of positive, getting something, getting positive or having positive. But the happiness of Nibbana is a totally different kind of happiness. It has nothing to do with the positive, nothing to do with getting or having. It's the happiness when life is totally free, totally above, all positive as well as all negative. So if you want to think in, of Nibbana in terms of happiness, please understand the kind of happiness that is meant. Don't confuse it with the ordinary happiness of worldly people. The second meaning of the Nibbana we're speaking of is usefulness. Many people misunderstand that when one realizes Nibbana, one is as still as a rock, that one doesn't move, that one doesn't do anything. This is a terrible misunderstanding. In fact, if it's real Nibbana, one is totally, life becomes totally active. The thing here is that the activity is useful. There's nothing harmful or destructive about the activity anymore. Life is fully active. And this there's a natural, spontaneous inclination to act in the way that is useful and beneficial. This, this doesn't need to be done with desire or will. It's just a spontaneous movement of life. So Nibbana is not some kind of stiffness or immovability. It's a natural movement to do what is useful. So please aim for these two meanings of Nibbana. Together, these cannot be separated. The cool peace and the usefulness. These are the, this is the proper understanding of Nibbana. This is the purpose of studying and practicing the principle of dependent origination. If we practice correctly, then one will realize this peacefulness and usefulness. To make this easy to understand, we can compare the coolness with a lack of coolness. Non-coolness means 
the blazing fires, the fires bursting up and burning. Non-coolness is the burning of fires. First, one burns oneself. The flames are consume one's own mind. But it doesn't stop there. These flames, these fires, also burn one's husband or wife. They burn one's lover. They burn one's children. They burn one's friends and associates. They burn society. These flames burn and scorch the entire world. Nowadays, the whole world is being burnt in this way because modern man and woman worship the positive far too much. You can observe this, reflect on this, see this for yourself, how we don't need to give that many examples for you to see how our worship of the positive, our obsession with the positive is burning the world. To put it, to summarize, life is genuinely cool when it isn't positive and it isn't negative. When life isn't under the power of positive and negative, then it is truly cool and at peace. When life is above, beyond the positive and negative, then there is real coolness. This is the, the highest, the fullest, most correct meaning of coolness. Life that is not positive and not negative. It is above and beyond the power of these things. So now we come to the matter of dependent origination. In order to study this, please remember the things that I asked you to remember yesterday, namely the ayatanikadamas, the ayatana, the senses, and all the things associated with the senses. There are the six senses, the six kind of sense objects. That is the inner ayatana and the outer ayatana. And there are the six kinds of sense consciousness or vijnana. Then the six kinds of contact, patsa. And finally the six kinds of feeling or vetana. There are these five sets, each set with six members for a total of 30 elements. These are the ayatanikadamas, the things associated with the senses. Please recall these in order to understand dependent origination. If we're familiar with these ayatanikadamas, then we can study and practice dependent origination 
even in our daily lives, in ordinary life. Allow us to stress and repeat these again because it's, it's very important. Okay, there are our, our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. These are the six senses. Then there are the forms, sounds, odors, flavors, touches, and mental objects, which are the sense objects which stimulate the six senses. And then there are these six kinds of consciousness, eye consciousness, ear consciousness, and so on, which arise when a sense object stimulates one of this, its corresponding sense. For example, a sound stimulates the ear. Then ear consciousness arises. Then there is contact, patsa. When these three things meet, when sense, the sense, the sense object, and sense consciousness function together, that is called contact. And then finally, feeling, the six kinds of feeling that arise dependent on the six kinds of contact. These are very important if we are to understand life in, with any accuracy and truth. We must, we must observe and understand these 30 Ayatanika Dhamma, even in ordinary life, even at home, as we go about our daily chores. So we can see the, we can consider the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind to be fireplaces. These are the places where the fire is built, the eyes, ears, etc. And then the forms, sounds, odors, flavors, and so on are the fuel. It's the wood or the fuel that we put in the fireplace. And then there is consciousness, the third element. Now when these three elements come together, when they interact, with ignorance, when these three interact in an ignorant way, when the mind is under the power of ignorance, then the fire is ignited. This ignition of the fire is called ignorant contact. If the contact of these three things is, is stupid, then the fire is started. And then the feelings are ignorant, and the feelings are the flames itself. So you can, you can understand the, the senses are the fireplace, the sense objects are the fuel, then there's consciousness. Sense contact is, when it's under the power of ignorance, is the ignition of the fuel. And then the feelings are the flames, are the fires themselves.
This is happening over and over again every day. In our normal existence, these fires are being lit over and over again. But it's something too mental, too spiritual for us to pay attention. We're so concerned and so obsessed with material things that we ignore and overlook these flames as they get ignited over and over again, many times, hundreds, thousands of times in a day. So it's necessary to start to observe this. This is easy to understand if we follow the principle, if, if we see and follow the principle that if stupid at contact, the fires blaze. But if mindful, attentive, that means intelligent at contact, there are no fires. If we're stupid at contact, it catches fire. But if there is mindfulness and intelligence, the fires can't, can't catch. Now, if contact is ignorant, then the feelings that arise from it are ignorant, are foolish. And when these feelings are stupid, then there arises desire, danha. And the word danha always means something blind, something ignorant. So this means if there is foolishness, ignorance at contact, then it will lead to desire, which gets us into all kinds of problems. However, if we are intelligent, mindful, and awake at contact, then any feelings that arise will be cool. The feelings will be intelligent rather than stupid. And then, instead of desire happening, there will be there will be aspiration. The aspiration, the aim to do what is correct, to do what is truly beneficial and safe. So study this difference very carefully, not by thinking but by watching it in life. The difference between if there's a lack of awareness, if there's, there will be ignorance at contact, the contact will be stupid, the feeling will be stupid, and there will be desire, which is always blind. However, if there's mindfulness and intelligence at contact, the feeling is, is safe, is cool, and there arises aspiration or sankapa, which is just for the mind to, 
to tend towards what is high, towards what is truly peaceful and of benefit. Now when there is desire, when there is ignorant desire, there arises the thought, the concept of the one who desires. Because desire is ignorant, there develops the ignorant concept of a desirer. Now this concept is both an illusion and it's deluding. It's an illusion because the desirer isn't really there. There's no reality behind this concept. So we say it's elusive. And it's delusive because it deludes the mind into all kind into into ego. The ego is born, the me, which leads to selfishness. So we say that this is elusive and delusive. What's quite funny about this and helps you to see this the illusion at work is that the desirer doesn't happen until after there is desire. The desire comes first and then the desirer. Now this may sound illogical but the problem is in the limits of your own thinking if it does seem illogical. But if we watch, first arises desire and only then does the desirer, the one who desires, that, that me that desires, appear. Now people are unable to understand Dhamma because they don't catch this, this truth. As long as people don't see that desire must come first for there to be a desirer, they'll never be able to understand Dhamma. Not seeing this, one continues to take the desirer to be real, to be an actual self, to truly be me. And as long as we're clinging to things as me, as mine, then we are not understanding Dhamma. But once we realize that the desire comes first and only then the desirer, no matter how illogical this may sound, once we see it, the Dhamma becomes clear. So we ask all of you to get together with your friends and discuss how the how desire comes first and only then is the desirer born when you if you want to make your conversations truly beneficial instead of merely wasting time this is the thing to discuss with your friends wherever you may be in order to help each other to see this important truth that the desirer is born from desire. When there is ignorant desire, then there arises the illusion, the elusive concept 
of self. Now this self is just a ghost. It's just a ghost that tricks us. It's a kind of hallucination. But because we fall for the, the trick, then we take, the self is born, and then we take all kinds of everything else to be mine. Once there is self, everything else is taken to be of self or belonging to self. This is the most important thing there is to study. This is the most important subject of discussion. So we encourage you to go into this deeply enough to, to see it's the fact that the desirer is born out of desire. The self doesn't exist. This fact that the self is an illusion, that it doesn't really exist, is, is called in Buddhism not-self the truth of not-self or anatta. In Thai, there's a word which isn't so easy to translate for that describes the self very well. It's a kind of spirit or ghost which isn't real that but nonetheless deceives us. So you can call it a tricky ghost or you can just call it a hallucination. Some kind of ghost that we think we see but isn't really there. So the self is like this. Once this hallucination occurs, then it's followed by the, the further delusion of things belonging to it. Once the self is born, it grabs onto all kinds of things as being mine. Once there is this self and of self, or me and mine, then selfishness is born. And selfishness exists solely for the purpose of destroying the world. The only thing selfishness will accomplish is destruction. This is what's growing out of ignorant desire. As for how selfishness will destroy the world, we really don't need to explain this. There are so many examples all over the place that you can easily find them for yourself. You can see by looking around how selfishness is increasing the amount of war, the amount of environmental destruction, the amount of corruption, the dishonesty among politicians, and on and on and on. So you can, you can see this quite easily for yourself, how selfishness is going to destroy the world. And please, please reflect on the meaning of when we use the word hallucination, this ghost, it's a hallucination, meaning it, it tricks us, it deceives us. It deceives us into 
clinging to things as being mine. And then this hallucination tricks us into selfishness. And once we are selfish, we participate. We contribute to the destruction of the world. This explanation isn't, doesn't yet fully capture the meaning of the Thai word P-log. P is a spirit or a kind of ghost that is very common word in Thai and many people um, believe in and claim to see these things, these spirits or ghosts. Log means to trick, to deceive. And there's always this, to, it's not a, a playful trickery, it's a nasty, evil, harmful kind of trickery. And so these, this is what we mean, I'm trying to translate as this hallucination or this deceptive, deceitful ghost. To understand it, you should realize whenever this deceitful ghost appears, then the flames ignite instantaneously. Wherever the flames are, there is this deceitful ghost. Okay, we'll go back to the beginning and take it step by step. When there is stimulation amongst the, of the senses, between sense organ and sense object, then this is the, this is the fireplace is loaded with fuel. It's, it's all ready. Once there is ignorant contact and then ignorant feeling, the fire has been started and is being stoked. Once there is danha, desire, mm -hmm. the fire is blazing. Once the fire leads to attachment, upadana, becoming, bhava, and then ego birth, jati, then the fire is burning. It's burning and consuming. Let's stop a minute and take a closer look at the word jati or birth because there's a secret here which can be easily misunderstood. The physical birth, the materialistic, the material meaning of the word birth means the physical birth of a child from its mother. But the spiritual meaning of this word birth is the, the birth in the mind of the ignorant concept of me, of ego. So there's two kinds of birth. There's the physical material birth and then there's this birth in the mind of me, of ego. Both kinds can be called jati. And then we come to the word rebirth. For the materialists who, who have a self or believe in some kind of self or soul, rebirth is that there is a self in, 
in the living creature, in the human being. And then when the person dies, this self goes and enters the womb of some woman. And then that, that self is born, and then eventually that person dies, and the self goes and enters another physical womb, and then there's another physical birth, and then another physical death. This is the materialistic understanding of rebirth for those people who still believe in self, cling to the idea of self. There's a physical kind of rebirth. Buddhism does not teach that kind of rebirth or reincarnation. In Buddhism, there is no place for this kind of idea of a rebirth of this kind of series of physical births, or which are just a bunch of reincarnations. In Buddhism, the meaning of rebirth is that the ego is born, another ego, or me, is born in the mind. Every time that, due to ignorance, this process of dependent origination occurs, beginning with the senses and then the fire gets started and then ego is born. Every time that happens, there is a rebirth of the me, of ego. If there are a hundred of these dependent originations in a day, then there are a hundred rebirths in a day. So this is the meaning of rebirth in Buddhism. Unfortunately, many Western scholars, the people who write the books that most foreigners read, have totally confused things. They've taken Hindu reincarnation and mixed it up with Buddhism, and then they've taken the Buddhist rebirth and mixed it up with Hinduism. Many Western scholars very carelessly mix, jumble together Hindu and Buddhist teachings, and so it's very confusing for people. But the idea of physical rebirths from life to life to life has no place in Buddhism. The proper teaching in Buddhism is the rebirth of ego, which is happen, can happen many times in one day. Now let's go back to the what it's like to be burnt by these fires. Whenever the deceitful ghost appears, then there is we get burnt in these these fires. Now what this fires here means, means dukkha. Whenever there is this deceitful ghost of self, of me, then there is, there is a kind of suffering. There is a need to endure. There is a, a torment in the mind. This can take many kinds, many different forms. For example, 
when there is self, when this deceitful ghost appears, then there may be thoughts of death. And then death is frightening. It's, it's a heavy, difficult experience. Or thoughts of illness. Thoughts of getting old. If, if there is ego and one has then any thoughts or concepts about illness, old age, and death is very peaceful or very painful. These are frightening. They, they terrify us. These, this is then to be burnt by fires of old age, illness, and death. There are other symptoms of this, these fires. One is sorrow, soka. Then there's baditewa, lamentation, dukkha, pain, domanatsa, sadness, and upayasa, anguish, despair. None of these different fires can appear without the deceitful ghost to, to light everything on fire. But once there is the me, then the me can experience all these different kinds of suffering. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, and anguish. So these are the different kinds, some of the different fires that burn, burn one when there is self. All of these things can be called trouble or problems. When there is self, then self has a problem. As soon as there is self, there is a problem. Old age, illness, and death become a problem. If there's no self, these things aren't a problem. There's nothing heavy or troublesome about them. They're just natural facts. But as soon as there is this deceitful ghost, all these things become trouble. They become problems. And this, these problems burn. They burn the mind. They burn life. Now, the ghost deceives us so that we don't even know the fire. Although we're burning, we don't even realize it because we're tricked by this ghost. In fact, the ghost deceives us so badly that we go and love the fire. We just love getting burnt. And so we we're tricked so, so, so badly that we attach, we cling desperately to the positive. So first, this hallucination appears, and then this, this ghost tricks us so we don't even see the burning that is going on. And then we fall in love with the burning. We, we take it to be positive. We delude ourselves that this is positive, this is great, this is wonderful, this is beautiful. This is how the ghost deceives us. 
This ghost deceives us so that we love selfishness. The selfishness that is destroying the world and doing all the harm that is done to people becomes very attractive to us because this ghost deceives us. Let's stress once again that in the, the cycle of the ayatanika dhammas, the things connected to the senses, that when the sense objects stimulate the sense organs, then the, the fireplace is loaded, that this is the fuel is right there. The fire is ignited when there is ignorant contact. And then the fire blazes when there is desire. And then the fire burns when there is attachment, becoming, and birth. The birth of the ego, the spiritual birth that we have already discussed. And then the fire roasts us and torments us when there is dukkha. When there arises this dukkha of, of, due to the ignorance of all these things, then we are roasted and tormented in those flames. And so please observe that everything is blazing. This, this body itself is a blast furnace. Now we come to a secret which we never see, although it's happening all the time. This fire is, is igniting all the time, but still we don't realize it. This is what we'll look at now. Now we'll look at the fact that if generally, or most of the time, if contact, if the meeting of sense organ, sense object, and sense consciousness, if this contact is complete, then the fire bursts. But if the contact is incomplete, or if there is mindfulness and intelligence at the contact, then there's no fire. So, this is very important. If the contact is complete with ignorance, then the fire burns. But if there's contact, but it's incomplete, or there's mindfulness and wisdom, then there's no fire. So there are two levels to contact. So listen carefully, this is very important secret. The first level of contact is just ordinary contact, or we could say mere contact. It's when the eye is in contact with forms, with maybe color, shapes, and there's this just basic stimu sensual stimulation. That's just ordinary contact. And there's no problem in this. The eye is just seeing something. 
and that's, that's totally natural and ordinary. But the second level of contact is when the mind makes contact with the meaning of the thing. The first level, there's just some object stimulating the sense. It can be a form stimulating the eyes or a sound stimulating the ears. And that, that's very ordinary. But the second level is when the meaning of that thing stimulates the mind or the mind makes contact with the meaning of that thing. Now, this is where the problem is. This is technically called Atiwajana Patsa, contact with the value, the meaning of something. Usually when we speak of contact, we mean this second level. The first level of contact is something very ordinary. It's like if you just look right now, your eyes see something, and then as your eyes move, it's gone. What you saw a moment ago is gone. You see something new, and then it's gone. And the mind, there's, the mind isn't getting stuck on anything. This is the, the basic physical level of contact. But then as soon as there's the, the full contact, where the mind makes contact with the deep meaning or value of something. This is where positive and negative occurs. So there are these two levels of contact. The difference between them is quite important. The first level of contact makes contact with the dimensions or the color or shape of something. The second level of contact makes contact with the value or the meaning or the advantage of something. Be very careful of this second level of contact. This is where the fire starts. The first contact just contacts the skin of the thing. But the second contact makes contact with the meat of it, with its meaning, its value. Be careful of the second kind of contact. It's the kind that will burn you. It's the same with sounds. When the ear, the first level of contact is when the ear makes contact with sounds or with sound waves. The second level is when the mind makes contact with the meaning of that sound. It's the second level of contact, whether with, with the contact with the meaning of forms, sounds, odors, tastes, touches, and mental experiences. This is, this is where the fire starts. If we aren't foolish at contact, if we are aware at contact, then the fire doesn't start. No flames burst forth. But if we're careless, 
if we're foolish at contact, then the fire gets started. And all our problems happen. When there's awareness and wisdom, then the flow of dependent origination stops. And so the, the fires don't occur. So would you all make contact with the world? Would you all relate to the world with mindfulness and wisdom so that the flow, the stream of dependent origination will stop right there at the contact which remains cool and intelligent? If you, if you experience the world in this way, then none of the fires will burst forth. Nothing will get burnt. Now, our lives are constantly in contact with sounds, forms, odors, tastes, touches, and all kinds of mental objects. This constant stream of sense objects is, is passing through life. The mind, life is constantly in contact with all this. But with mindfulness and wisdom, we can stop each contact right there to be just ordinary contact, not let the, to stop the flow, the stream of dependent origination. So, and then the fires are cooled. The fires don't, aren't even started or ignited. And then our life is free of dukkha. Life is cool. There is, and we've realized the, the purpose of life, the peacefulness and the usefulness. This is discovered right there at contact by being mindful and wise in experiencing the world. Then Everything is cool, life is peaceful and useful. And that's, that wraps things up. Our life will stop bursting into the flames of a blast furnace when we're aware of, understand, and can master the flow of dependent origination. As long as we don't understand this, our life keeps bursting into flame. But once we understand it, there are no more flames. This is all we need to know. This subject is quite an extensive one. And so the time has filled up quite quickly. So we'll wait till for another day to talk about the kind of knowledge or the science which enables us to, to control the flow of dependent origination so no flyers ignite. So we'll speak on that later. We'd like to thank you for being patient and careful listeners, and we appreciate your attention. <laughs> We ask that you allow us to close today's meeting. <laughs>